0: Welcome back to our Open Source Startup Podcast. This is Tim from Essence VC, and Robbie from Cowboy Ventures. We're super excited to have Founders of Aqueduct, which is orchestrating and managing production machine learning. So Birkham and Joey are the Founders of Aqueduct, and we're super excited to have both of you here.
1: And we love when we get two folks from our company coming to join us, we're very excited. And as you know, on this podcast, we like to go all the way back to the beginning And so maybe you can both tell us about the Aqueduct founding story and also like where you started versus where you are today.
2: Definitely. Aqueduct started from a research we've been doing at Berkeley for maybe six, seven years before actually launching the company, really thinking about what happens when machine learning succeeds. In fact, when I started as a faculty, I was like, you know, the machine world is getting really hot. What should we be studying? And the question to me at that point was like, well, if everyone's training models, what are they going to do when they're done training them, serving them? And so, how we bring machine learning out of the training process into the serving world, connected to all the applications that would need it. What were the challenges about, you know, finding resources, beating deadlines, capturing feedback, monitoring—all this stuff was critical to taking machine learning from a thing we do in academia to something that solves real-world problems. Uh, and so, we started a project, a series of projects around how to serve models, how to bring in serverless computing to make the process more cost-effective. That's where you know Vikram spent much of his PhD work on. And so, yeah, that was the very beginning of our journey. We had some early open source projects, Clipper, that kind of prototyped these ideas. They actually had some pretty exciting adoption for like a very beginning research effort. And then, you know, as Vic was graduating, we're like, wow, we should see what this technology can do to really solve problems in the real world. And at the same time, we were building the data science program at Berkeley, which has, you know, been a huge success and a lot of energy behind data science. A lot of students from all over campus are jumping into data science because it's a chance to you know, use data and compute to solve real problems. The catch is they do data science in a Jupyter notebook, in a browser, and they don't manage infrastructure. And sadly, we don't even teach what you do after you train your model. So at that point, they're like, they can make a, a chart, but really to solve a problem, they need to be able to connect that machine learning to the world. And so we felt like looking at the technologies at that point in time, there weren't great solutions for how to bring that machine learning idea, model, and connect it to the world that needed it. And that is kind of the genesis of the research, and it kicked off the early days of the company. Vikram, do you want to take it from there?
3: I think you covered a lot of it. I think
2: what I would add
3: is the emphasis on the developer experience and the personas who are managing the machine learning lifecycle today. And I think... The difference even compared to seven or or 10 years ago when machine learning first started becoming popular is that we actually have really powerful cloud infrastructure now. If you know what you're doing, setting up a Spark cluster on AWS or Kubernetes cluster and getting access to a GPU isn't the most difficult thing in the world. But the problem is that it requires a completely different skill set from the machine learning skill set. And so when you're trying to find this of unicorn persona who knows everything about cloud infrastructure and then knows everything about machine learning and getting them to do both of these processes at the same time that becomes you know a personnel challenge and it also just kind of makes these people a little miserable because they're required to do everything under the sun when it comes to machine learning and the opportunity i think around that is to really bring the cloud much closer to a large majority of data scientists who may not have that infrastructure experience
1: Awesome. And I also think it's worth maybe touching on how you both got to know each other. I can make guesses based on your LinkedIn that Joey may be mm-hmm. your Vikram's professor, but how you started working together and then why you decided to work together. Like, how did you actually test out the co-founding relationship?
3: Well, that's kind of an easy one. Joey was my advisor at Berkeley. There are four of us who actually started the company together, Joey and myself, and then my other advisor from Berkeley, Joe Hellerstein, and another grad student who I worked with, along with Joey and Joe and Gang Wu. And the four of us, I think throughout the time Gang and I were in grad school, uh, were working together pretty consistently on everything from serverless infrastructure to applying that to some of Joey's prediction serving work and so on. And I think, you know, having spent many paper deadlines together was a good kind of battle testing of relationships and figuring out where everyone's strengths were and what people were able to kind of contribute and focus on. And, you know, doing that over the course of four or five years just gave us the confidence that we all knew pretty well how to work together. It wasn't something that was necessarily even super planned. I think it came about in more of an organic way uh, just while we were all working together on research. And then when it came to doing something after grad school, it kind of became the obvious group of people for us to pick up and work together with.
2: I'll add, like I've worked with a lot of grad students now, and a lot of grad students are very good at writing papers. Many are good at kind of finding technically challenging problems and tackling them. A very few are good at kind of seeing where the world's heading, seeing where the problem like the real problems are, kind of identifying where there are opportunities to make impact. Hirkram is one of those students as now my boss at the company, you know, an excellent manager as well. So it's been a, a fun journey. And again, it's rare that we see in academia students that can do all of that. And you know that's Vikram. So it was an opportunity for me, actually, as a, you know, a faculty just coming up for tenure to go do something new to really try these ideas in the world. And Vikram and Changang and Joe are kind of the right team to do that with.
0: Yeah, I guess the mini lesson here is advisors really need to treat their students really well. Yeah, that's right. You never know what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. So actually love to talk about what is Aqueduct, right? Because I think orchestrated, managed production machine learning is still a pretty big space. Give us a little bit of overview, like what exactly is Aqueduct and what are the problems you're trying to solve?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So Aqueduct is an ML orchestration layer. What that means is that we have a very lightweight Python API that allows you to define a machine learning pipeline just as a sequence of Python functions. We allow you to deploy those pipelines onto A variety of cloud infrastructure, everything from a Kubernetes cluster, Spark cluster, Databricks, whatever it is that you use within your existing ecosystem. And then we provide visibility into what's actually happening in those pipelines once they're executing in the cloud. Visibility meaning what was the code, what was the data, were there any logs or stack traces or errors, did I calculate any metrics or set any thresholds on those metrics, basically all of the things that live around the pipeline execution itself. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where it's become pretty clear that there's a lot of very powerful cloud infrastructure already, right? It's very fun from an engineering perspective for us to think about going and building a better Spark or a better Kubernetes, but everyone's already using Spark and Kubernetes. And over the last couple of years, having interviewed, I think, a couple hundred data teams, it's very clear that oftentimes they're not willing or ready or even able from an organizational perspective to rip out all their infrastructure and stick in something new. They need to be able to do machine learning on top of what's already there in their ecosystem. And so our goal with Aqueduct has been to layer a really lightweight API and really simple to use developer experience on top of the existing cloud infrastructure that teams have today.
1: Awesome. And so you said you interviewed a couple hundred data teams I think like, that process early on of understanding exactly like what use cases you're going to go after is super important and helpful, I think, for other founders to hear about. So what did you learn from those about the best use cases for Aqueduct or the best workloads? Like, What kind of came out of that where you're like, okay, this is going to inform like, our project and or eventually products direction?
2: I can maybe start with the hard lesson. So a lot of the research we had been doing at Berkeley was about how to make things run faster how to bring down latency, how to really drive costs down. And we went and talked to these many teams and we are like, how fast do you need it to run? How big do you need to scale it? And very few said faster or bigger. Most said, we need just to make it work. We need to make it reliable. You know, FLOs aren't the five milliseconds or die thing that we write papers about. It's like, I just need a to run. I'm wasting a lot of time setting up infrastructure myself. Can you solve that problem? In many cases, it was, I needed to run once a week. And I needed to run reliably once a week, but you know, on a few tens of thousands of rows—not the big data that, again, we write papers about. And often the problem was I needed to connect a bunch of different data sources. So it's—it wasn't the nugget of the model itself, but it was everything around it that was actually the real challenge that we heard immediately. It was, again, contrary to kind of the way we had done the research, because when we did the research, we were thinking about, you know, companies like the Google, Facebooks, Meta, Amazon that need to have tight deadlines. And, and the, you know, the bigger companies do. And as we reached out to more customers, we started to learn more about kind of the whole space. But a lot of people, that wasn't the first problem. So that was kind of the first exciting lesson to learn.
3: And I think what that meant for us in terms of a, of a product direction and how that's influenced what we've built is that it's really shown us that... The hard problems in this or the hard problem that we're trying to solve with infrastructure is really not around solving, you know, just training or just inference or maybe just something like hyperparameter search. Those are all ways in which teams are running machine learning in the cloud today. And depending on the specifics of, you know, like Joey said, the business use case, who's the ultimate user or customer on the other side of this prediction? What are the modeling techniques that they're using under the hood in order to generate these predictions? All of those influence when and where teams are deciding to go from, I have something cool on my laptop to, I need this to run reliably in the cloud or in some rare cases at scale in the cloud. And so how that's influenced us is that we really have removed a lot of our opinions about what the types of machine learning that can and should be happening within Aqueduct are. From a technology perspective, what we're really focused on is, can we enable you to run data-intensive Python code reliably on your cloud? infrastructure. Whether that's going to mean that you need a GPU to do deep neural net training or whether that just means you have 10 gig of data and all you need is just a scikit-learn logistic regression model and you just want to make sure that runs every night reliably. We don't have opinions about those things, but we want to give you the capabilities to do those things. So Tim, your point that orchestrate managed machine learning in the cloud is a broad phrase. It is intentionally broad, right? We do think that there is a variety of use cases that fall underneath this, but they're solvable with the same technology that we're building.
0: And I think this space, like this whole machine learning space, I guess maybe you can encompass this as ML ops space overall, has been really tricky to navigate for a lot of people because there's actually a lot of choices for a lot of players today, or a lot of customers, or people that are data scientists, there's ML engineers. There are a ton of open source software out there, a ton of Products, we'll say, out there doing a lot of different things, and it may not be obvious what is the sort of the thought process or choice when it comes down to building a product that does what you do right now, which is, like I said, Python-based, doing orchestration, actually pulling in data as well. It feels like you're actually bundling several projects or tools together. You know, just by, based on description, I don't know—is that the right way to think about it? Like, how would you help people to sort of like contrast, right? What is the sort of state of the world versus what you're trying
3: to like push down to? Yeah, so I think it boils down to one of the lessons that we've learned in our user interviews over the last couple of years, which is that you're spot on. There's a ton of tools. In fact, one user emailed us a couple months back. It's like, hey, I'm thinking about these seven tools, right? My management (laughs) told me I'm supposed to evaluate these things. They all kind of sound the same. They all kind of sound different. I don't know what's actually going on here. Can you help me understand the space a little bit? And I think... That's because everyone is, by and large, trying to couple interface design with infrastructure design and make things scalable and then also make things extremely cost-efficient or fast or whatever the some of the uh, things that we were originally optimizing for, like Joey described a few minutes ago. But I think what we've learned is that what it really boils down to is helping people make that transition from their laptop to the cloud. That is the problem that we've heard time and time again. Right. And it's primarily, you know, things like training or maybe batch inference on a fixed schedule. It's occasionally something like an experiment that needs to fan out to a high scale for hyperparameter search. And it's occasionally I want to deploy a rest endpoint that's going to serve a server prediction on demand. But our focus has really been in that middle phase, right? It's been the batch training and batch inference orchestration, because that's, you know, if you just think about this as a distribution that's been probably the middle 80% of the distribution that we've come across. Maybe at the high end of the maturity spectrum that's happening on Spark or Databricks, at the low end that's happening, you know, on a cron job with a Python script that has, you know, your Snowflake credentials baked into it. And there's their spectrum there. But most people we found are trying to solve this by saying, hey, use my infrastructure, use my API, and I will give you a lower cost and a better experience and all of these types of things. When what people really want is I have Snowflake, I want to take some data out of Snowflake, run some predictions on it, and yeah, that probably needs to run within my cloud for security or compliance purpose, and then just write it back to Snowflake. And that's really where we've uh, focused of late. We have plans to kind of expand beyond that into some of the other use cases I described earlier, but that focus of scheduled workflows has been the the starting.
2: It's almost like the problem with MLOps is MLOps. It's just there are so many solutions to every single piece of the pie, and no one ever said, well, how do I put these pieces together? And how do I manage all these pieces once I have them together? And, you know, you take like the, the hyperscalers buy our single box solution, but even then you go into their thing, it's like, yeah, really this is just all of Amazon looped into one interface. And it's just hard to reason about, it's hard to manage. And you take a data scientist from Berkeley who's really smart and understands domains amazingly well and knows a little bit of Python and that's just too much. And that gets in the way of them actually solving problems. And so like in some sense, the biggest problem in MLOps is just MLOps is a mess. And what we want to do is provide simplicity in that and a way to kind of control all those pieces, be able to click and plug them in and then start to use them, make sense of them. And then in many cases, manage them as they live in the cloud. And so, yeah, it's confusing. And it's been challenging to communicate what the problem is when we talk to users, because there are so many pieces of a problem that each user experiences and, you know, interesting in different ways.
1: That makes a ton of sense. And I also want to talk a bit about why open source? is important for a platform like Aqueduct. And I think at that beginning, it was Vikram, you we were talking about developer experience. I imagine that that's part of the open source story, but maybe speak to like the decision there. And was it like, okay, this is for sure gonna be open source, there's no question, or did you debate it out?
3: It actually wasn't obvious at all from the beginning that it was gonna be open source. Part of our focus coming from building serverless infrastructure was to say, hey, we can do a better job of posting this, We can make it really seamless. We can probably do smart things under the hood in terms of resource management and scheduling. And so for the first about year, we were actually building Aqueduct as a completely hosted closed source tool. And we went through a journey to get to the point of deciding to go open source. And there were a few reasons. The most kind of tactical one was security. A lot of the companies that we were talking to as potential users were just very concerned about compliance and, you know, we, we obviously could have chosen at that time to go and get talked to a compliance that would have taken a while and a lot of effort. And we felt that just overcoming those security concerns by being open source would be a very quick way to get into people's hands and get user feedback. But the more we thought about it, we've also started to realize that in the data and ML space in general, open source is a really powerful lever to pull because It allows people who may not necessarily have control or decision-making power over infrastructure to try out a tool and give feedback and maybe not even decide to use it immediately because it's earlier, they don't see the full value yet, but share feedback in lightweight ways that allow us as a team to iterate very quickly and get to a point where we mature much faster. And I think what that's meant in practice is that the kinds of conversations that we're able to have with the teams where we can say, hey, we really are committed to building out an, an open source project. You can see everything that we're doing is, is an open source here and we're open sourcing the following features and functionality. Just, I think, lends a, a level of credibility and a level of engagement from the community with the project that I think is just different from, from building closed source software. I don't know that one is substantively better or worse, but I think what it does mean is that it allows us to iterate really fast, which for an early stage company is incredibly, incredibly valuable.
0: And so it's interesting. I think definitely talks about like, it's really hard to explain to users, right? And we'll have to like dive into like the journey and learnings of speaking with users, because I think that's probably one of the main challenges. I think open source wise as well, right? You know what is the sort of the message you choose to use on the open source projects, and also I'm looking at some of the contents, right? You know, like saying Airflow is bad for ML, right? You know, and and have a sign up, right? There's definitely I think there are angles you're trying to talk about, to trying to say what is really the biggest challenge you're trying to tell users. And so, yeah, maybe let's start about open source, right? What is the learnings you've gotten so far? Open sourcing and trying to talk to users, hey, we're new. Here's one new open source project for ML ops, but we're different. <laughs> different in what ways, right? What is the learning so far, and what are the major hurdles that got you people to understand or get excited about you?
3: It's a really interesting thought exercise because I at least felt this way, and I think this is true from other founders I've spoken with as well. That when you're building something new for the first time, you have a tendency to Really focus on how it's different. We're building this tool and it's not like Airflow or it's not like Kubeflow because of X, Y, and Z. And those are valid and, and important distinctions for any product, not just for what we're building. And I think what that means is you try to come up with a way of describing it that's different from Airflow or from Kubeflow for in our case. And I think that oftentimes models the message more than anything. Some people are probably smarter than me and or, or lucky or both and are able to figure out these kind of Marketing taglines that really click with people. But what we found works more often than not is you point to something that people already know and you say, Hey, doesn't that thing kind of make your life a pain? And they go, Yeah, of course it makes my life a pain. Here's the 12 reasons that it does. You say, great. Imagine you have all the functionality, but none of the pain of that tool. And that becomes a really powerful way to position an early stage product, especially like you're pointing out, Tim, in a very kind of noisy, crowded, popular space. I think is. We've learned that it's very valuable to just say, you know what Airflow is. You probably use Airflow right now. We're Airflow, but we're built for machine learning and we're built for data scientists so that you don't have to deal with all of the low-level configuration environment management stuff that you deal with with Airflow. That's probably the number one lesson, Jeremy. I'm sure you have others as well.
2: Certainly, our transition as we went from thinking really about serving to the bigger picture put us in this position really great, but how do you say what it is? Are we forming a new product category? You know, it's exciting to try to do that, but it's just really hard to do that in a space where everyone is saying, oh, but you need this block and you need a feature store and you need this to succeed at your MLOps narrative. And again, in some sense, the more people we talk to, like, that's the problem we have is they don't really know what I need anymore. There's so many pieces in this space. And coming back to like, why, well, right, what are you using? What do you not like about it? Starts to you know help articulate more clearly what we're doing is, is filling in those holes that make... You know, the pieces you have today not make sense. So then for each user, you're sort of saying, all right, so I understand you're having trouble with Airflow or you're having trouble managing Kubeflow or you've used MLflow but it's not doing the of thing you need for. It. We can help you link these pieces, keep the parts that you do need because there are parts that people are like, no, I, I really like that part, but you know, there are other parts that, that doesn't fit what I need to do.
3: This is a lesson that I don't think we learned in isolation. It's definitely something we learned from looking at other successful open source companies, things like Superbase or NoCoDB that, have very explicitly, clearly positioned themselves as open source alternatives or improvements over existing hosted infrastructure, I think have been very successful because it's very easy for people to say, I you know I know what Airtable is and I need a more configurable version of Airtable. Well, great, NoCoDB gives me a more configurable version of Airtable. And I think it's a very powerful paradigm that's worked for a lot of other open source tools. Airbyte's another great example, right? And I think we're, you know, very, very humbly copying other smart people. I don't think this is a unique insight we've we've had at all.
1: That's interesting. We've had so many of those founders on here talking about how even if you are like, it's kind of like um, in some ways downplaying the, like the new paradigm that you've come up with, it gets you that initial interest of like, okay, someone can very quickly like understand what you're building. So I'm glad that you brought that up. So I know that you're focused on driving open source momentum right now. Can you talk maybe a little bit more tactically about the ways that you're doing that? So there's content, but like from a day-to-day perspective, like how are you actually driving people to use Aqueduct?
3: Yeah, it's, we're very early is the honest answer. We have, really spent a lot of time being technologists, being product people, spent a lot of time focused on the product over the last couple of years. And it's really kind of in the last six months or so that we've started to think about how do we get the word out there? How do we build the community? What are the tactical things that we should be doing on a daily basis? And I think at the end of the day, the things that we found in our early journey that have worked are engaging with people directly because that's the highest fidelity form of feedback that we can get even for the people who eventually decided not to adopt Aqueduct, being on calls with them and having them try to set something up and saying, hey, what the heck does that thing mean? And why is this button over here? I couldn't even find it. Just these small things that allow you to constantly improve the product, improve the documentation. That's the biggest, I think, value-add leverage that you can get early on. Because all these things, whether it's positioning or, or comparisons to other products, they're never going to be fully baked in the Early stages of a company's life cycle, right? And it's really trying once, trying twice, trying three times, and doing that in a in a very quick feedback loop that allowed us at least to get to a stage where we felt like we understood what it was that we needed to go build. Once we had that, then yeah, I think it became more about the basic mechanics of starting to build out a community, so writing content, seeing what content landed with people, seeing who are the kinds of people joining our Slack workspace, for example, engaging with them, asking for their feedback, those types of things, right? And even, you know, in the last couple of months as we've been creating content more consistently, we found that certain topics that tend to, I think, be a little punchier, a little more controversial, land very effectively. And some of the more kind of engineering-oriented content that we've created, deep dives on how you do X or how Aqueduct works have not generated quite as much attention, but have actually generated maybe a little bit more deep engagement in the smaller pockets that they've gotten into. And so if you look at things like spikes in web traffic versus how many people joined our Slack workspace, the thought leadership content, so to speak, has definitely increased web traffic, but less on the Slack engagement. And the opposite is true for some of the engineering content.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love the sort of hot takes to drive web traffic and real meat to actually keep them uh, feeding, <laughs> engaged with, with you. So I think one challenge, definitely one of the spaces is since MLOps, I think traditionally has been more just engineers, data engineers and machine learning engineers. They're they're different beasts than data scientists. Data scientists, like I said, know how to do models, know how to do charts. Let's hire a separate team. Let's hire a separate group of experts. And they're the ones we're going to like train and hire and, and do all that stuff. And you're giving people a lightweight Python SDK. I think you're actually trying to talk to both, if I understand correctly, like you want the data scientists to use you while giving sort of like the ML engineers products that they'll feel very comfortable and empowered to use. And I'm sure that's probably not an easy marketing challenge either, that you have to get both sides happy. So I'm just curious, like, what is the sort of journey here? Did you sell to engineers right away, knowing this is an engineer product, or do you try and sell to scientists? Like... What have you learned to be the most effective way to actually get groups involved, not just to understand and try it and adopt it?
2: When we launched the company, the thing that made me most excited was kind of the hope that in the future, everyone's going to be a data scientist. Because basically, I'm teaching 2,000 students, it's insane. The data science program, everyone coming through knows some Python, coming through Berkeley. They will be able to go make charts, build basic models right away. They are the ones who will inherit the cloud. And we we'll use computing to solve problems for companies and when we launched i was like if we can make those people the people who are the engineers of the future the data scientists the people who solve problems with the knowledge they have the data the tools that exist we will change the world when we went to work with these people and started to interview and stuff we started to learn that the engineering community is also equally important today because the engineering community often holds the keys to the data to the infrastructure and so the need to bridge the two became pretty essential to our product and to our kind of long-term vision. So yeah, today we have to enable engineers to be more effective, to help them support data science teams so the data science teams don't have to get help with every single thing they want to do. And but we want to keep the APIs, the ideas, the concepts simple enough that a data science student who's taken you know two classes at Berkeley can go off and really change the world with their ideas. And so yeah, it's been a balancing act, but it's what makes it fun.
3: It's also a highly variable bio-organization. That's something that we've learned time and time again. We've interviewed and talked to machine learning engineers who, by our definition, would just be data scientists. We've talked to data scientists who would be ML infrastructure engineers, by our definition. There's just a lot of variance in the titles people have, and also in the roles that they kind of grow into, right? I think ML and data science are still so new at many companies that there aren't established teams and organizational structures and even promotion paths. And so some people who start off as data scientists still have that title, but out of necessity, they go and they set up their Airflow infrastructure and their Kubernetes infrastructure. And three years later, it's a full-time job managing that installation, but on the org chart, it still says data scientist. And I think what that's meant is that it's forced us into a, like you said, balancing act around figuring out both what the needs of these different personas are and kind of being in the middle of, hey, we have the really lightweight DX, but we also have the configurability that a more engineering infrastructure oriented person would want. And, you know, I think I wouldn't say we've perfectly achieved that balance at all. I think there's still work to be done there. And to Joey's point, we started off really focused on the data scientists. And because of that, we've abstracted a lot of things away. And as we've talked to more mature companies, they kind of ask for more of those configuration knobs back. And so we're building some of those things back in. And I think it's just the natural process of going from talking to and working with earlier stage companies to more mature companies with more requirements. And I think we're, we're definitely in the middle of that journey right now.
1: Yeah. So I wanted to ask about your process of managing that because the needs of like a team of one or two or three data scientists are so different than if you're at like a big company. And so just like managing what to build or what to like put off for now and like figure out where to prioritize. It's like for so many companies or so many open source companies, it's so challenging because you see the pull in different directions. So do you have like any learnings on how to actually manage those, like let's call them requests or just like needs or product specs or like how to actually like figure out how to prioritize?
3: I think it's a question of knowing who it is you're trying to serve at the end of the day. We started off, talking to smaller companies. And what we learned is that a lot of smaller companies are exploring machine learning, but aren't necessarily fully serious about machine learning yet. And if they are, that infrastructure is sometimes good enough for them. Even though they know that their Airflow setup is you know, not scalable or frustrating to use, There's just not enough cycles, you know, and I I deeply empathize with this running a startup. There aren't enough cycles in a day to do 80% of the things I want to do. And so I understand why at a startup, you know, you may not have the cycles to invest in fixing your ML infrastructure. But once you start increasing either the number of people involved or the, I would describe it as kind of the mission critical nature of machine learning, right? Are you doing machine learning in a way that stakeholder at the company or a customer is relying on, that's when things kind of cross this Rubicon kind of seriousness, where you really need to invest time and energy into making sure that your infrastructure is set up to serve you really, really well. That's a lesson that we've learned over the last year or so. And I think what that's led us to prioritize from a product roadmap perspective really is more of the maturity. First. Early on, we were less focused on things like integrating with Databricks or Spark because most of the people we were talking to were operating on two or five gigabytes of data. Now, when you're not talking about two terabytes of data, like, yeah, we need to integrate with something like Spark, for example, or add GPU support. And so really narrowing down our ICP and understanding better where in the market we wanted to focus has been, I think the most critical part for us of reprioritizing and organizing our product roadmap in a way that's coherent with what we're hearing from our potential users.
0: So I want to ask maybe more about the team since you didn't really start as open source company, right? You know, this is where like, let's start a team. Let's go figure out what's really important in ML space. And you kind of nailed this problem area and then decided to be open source. I think a lot of open source companies we talked to that hiring for open source actually is different than just hiring for normal sort of like engineers or products. I wonder is there any sort of learnings or transitions for you either as helping your team understand what is actually creating open source-based company means? Any sort of like things that are not natural or things that are different towards that? Or do you feel like there's actually a need to hire people? Maybe that's knowing how to build an open source-based community or project. Just curious of what you've learned so far in this sort of like transition into open source-based company.
3: It's a fascinating question. And I think it depends a lot on, personas at the company that you're thinking about. From an engineering perspective, I think at least our team has been phenomenal in this transition from closed to open source. I think there are product DNA decisions that we made early on in the closed source product that probably have still incurred some tech debt that we would ideally not have if we had started as fully open source. But I think that's a natural transition, right? When you're going from a completely different paradigm of providing a product to users to hey i can just download this or pip install it and run it on my laptop there's always going to be that transition i think our team has actually been very thoughtful from the perspective of a lot of them are open source users in their own right from either in tools that they use as a part of building our product or from past experiences they're trying to be productive at their work and they want to use a tool and they good experiences when they've been able to be very successful and they've had bad experiences when they tried to use something and it just didn't work no matter what they did and bringing that experience to bear has actually helped us have more thoughtful conversations internally around what are the things we should prioritize where do we focus where do we maybe cut some corners because we have less cycles to dedicate to certain features or certain bits of documentation and i think software engineers at least in my experience are very good at making that transition because we all use open source all the time, every day, and everything that we do. On the flip side of that, I think when you're thinking about things like community, I think there is something really powerful in having someone on the team who is actively focused on building and nurturing an open source community. And that's a role that we're actively hiring for right now, actually, um, is bringing on someone to Focus on how do you communicate out to the community in terms of content, how do you nurture those relationships once they're in the community and, and re-engage with them, garner feedback, all those types of things. And I do really pretty strongly believe that as much as you know, Joey and I can do our best, along with everyone on the team to do this stuff with the cycles that we have, I think having someone really dedicated and focused on that is extremely powerful and extremely valuable because it shows a level of commitment from the company to the community's growth and success, which I think is a really critical sign as people start to come in and grow and engage with the community.
1: Awesome. And I wanted to talk about your fundraising experience. So there's not a ton about it online. So I assume that a lot of it's not announced. But Joey, for you, this is your second company. But Vikram, this is your first time as a venture back founder. Joey, was this your first experience raising venture funding? And also just talk us through like, what you learned through that experience. What was hard? What was maybe easier than expected?
2: It was my second time. Before starting at Berkeley's faculty, I launched a company, uh, formerly Graph Lab. We'll just talk about the final name, Turi. Ultimately, became about processing data on your laptop easily and scalably and visualizing it so on. So kind of earlier days before data was more of a solved problem. Yeah, for the first pitch of that company that was we had a big open source community already around the my thesis work which was kind of the foundation of that technology and so raising funds was relatively straightforward it was smaller at different times we had a similar kind of journey the kind of development of product learning about where the user space was that company was eventually acquired by apple pretty successfully after Apple was using the technology, it's now, you know, on all the mobile devices, That's maybe my biggest impact, of getting <laughs> some code out there that everyone wears on their watch. But yeah, so that was the kind of my first experience doing this kind of fundraising.
3: Our other co-founder, Joe Halderstein previously founded a company called Trifacta, so he had extensive fundraising experience as well. And that made it, from a mechanics perspective, it meant that we had a lot of experience to lean on. I think what we found at that time was that and this was about two years ago, but folks we were really looking for on the venture side was an understanding of the machine learning space. And having spent for Joey 15 years for the rest of us, six or seven years in this space, we had that background and we've seen the evolution of the ideas go through everything from graph algorithms back when Joey was in grad school to things like iterative algorithms on Spark to Python, and then really thinking about operationalizing these things. And I think having that background was really valuable for us going into the fundraising process.
0: Switching side a little bit, I actually want to ask more about sort of like the key lessons you learned from your prior experience. And I think Joey and Vikram, you have a little different context. So I'll start with Joey. You mentioned about your last company, right? Graph Labs and Tuturi was also in this data science space as well. What are the biggest learnings from that journey, right? That you say, okay, I'm going to do this next company, maybe something the same or different next time, right? I wonder what are the biggest learnings for you?
2: Understand the problem. We came into Turi Graph Lab initially with a project, Graph Lab, an open source effort that had a lot of energy behind it. And we we're like, we're going to make the graph thing the future. And we spent a fair amount of time on the graph narrative early on because like, we know this is going to be big, but we didn't spend maybe as much time really digging into like, what is the problem? <laughs> and so this time around, we we're a little more like, let's really ask questions. Let's not go in like, hey, you should try a cool thing. Let's learn about where people's problems really are. We have a good hypothesis. We have good technology. Like broadly, the idea that the systems that we built will be helpful in integrating the cloud into this bigger data science world and making people more productive, that we were talking about, but how exactly? I wanted to make it get that right in the beginning. And we spent a weird amount of time just like talking to as many people as possible. Like cold, I never cold emailed before. That's something we didn't do in my previous startup. We just waited for people to come to us and tell us about, you know, how they love graphs. And this time we're like, let's just ask people, people that aren't looking for us, what's your real problem?
0: So I'm switching to you Vikram. I know this is your first company, but, uh, Your father started a company called Blue Data that was acquired by HP, right? And also data science related, right? So I thought it was super interesting. I never asked you this question. So I'm just curious if you do have any advice or learnings you got from him, maybe observing from the third party, or I don't know what party, or just direct learning from him. What did you learn of anything that you also thought this is something that will be applicable to you starting
3: this one? I think I'm very lucky from that perspective, having that perspective and advice to lean on, both from my dad and from Joe, who ran Prefacto as CEO for a couple of years. And I think where I've really felt that it's been a valuable experience to lean on has been less kind of in the strategy or product development or those types of things. Cause I think those things are so time-dependent, they're so market dependent, and they change so fast that it's very difficult to take a lesson from, you know, when my dad started Blue Data, just 10, 11 years ago when Joe started Trifactive, which was almost 11 years ago, and applied them to 2023. But the other side of it, the day-to-day of running a company and hiring, fundraising, and figuring out how to go through big changes in company direction or strategy are things that do really generalize across different experiences. Because for a startup, no matter what space it's in or what, what product it's working on, there are going to be those moments where you are thinking really hard about what decisions you've made and how that affects where you go from here and having perspective and advice to lean on in those moments, I think has been the most valuable thing for me and how not only do you make those decisions, but how do you communicate those decisions thoughtfully to your team? How do you be as transparent as possible? How do you be not just reactionary to the last bit of advice or the last bit of feedback that you heard, but really integrate all of the experiences you've had in running the company? That's where I feel like I've really learned Most from all of the advice that I have the good fortune to have.
1: What are kind of the biggest pieces of advice that you would give other open source founders now, given the journey that you've both been on?
3: I would say the number one thing that I will probably do differently if I were to think about starting a company from scratch today is really focus on not just having an understanding of customer needs in a one-on-one conversational perspective, which I think, as Joey said, we spent a lot of time on it, and I'm very glad that we did, but also get the word out there more more quickly, more aggressively. Right. I think it's something that a lot of open source companies have done well and something that we just didn't prioritize. But I think having a really good understanding of what types of messages work for people in a one-on-one conversation versus in a blog post or in a tweet or whatever it might be, is really valuable. And I think I probably underestimated, at least personally, how different those two things might be. The things that you can say to someone in a conversation to get them to understand when you're showing them and talking to them what it is you're trying to build are very different from how things come across or how things are communicated when you're not in the room, so to speak. And so exercising both of those muscles simultaneously from a positioning and marketing perspective is something that I wish we had done earlier and think we could have really benefited from, especially in kind of a As we've discussed many times now, a noisy and crowded space.
2: Having a point in a space that you are delta from is easier to communicate in the very beginning of the open source efforts. Having points of reference and just saying, here's a point of reference, we delta that reference definitely helps.
3: The other thing I'd add, I think as engineers, or maybe this is just something I personally focus on, I tend to want to have the right idea or the right answer to something before I share it, right? And if I'm not maybe not 100%, but if I'm not 90% sure on what I'm thinking, I tend to kind of hold it back and say, okay, let me make sure I really believe in this thing before I put it out there. And obviously you don't want to spam bad ideas or poorly thought out ideas into the world. But I think there is a lot of virtue in trying out a few different things that you believe and things that are related and, and maybe explore different comparison points or different taglines or whatever it is you're trying to experiment with and communicating those things early on and seeing what lands with people and being a little bit less shy and reserved about just trying things, right? I think that's a trap that we certainly fell into. And I think it would have helped us kind of iterate to a, a stronger point on messaging faster if we had been a little bit less reserved about that.
0: Awesome. This is great lessons. I definitely don't feel like you're shy at all, but, you know, thank you so much for being on this one. And I think there's definitely lots of great lessons for all the founders to learn. So thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us.